millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going back to the war in Ukraine. When are Ukrainian forces going to launch their long-expected counteroffensive? What's it going to look like? And what chance is there that it improves prospects for ending the war? Ukraine appears ready to launch its long-awaited counteroffensive. Preparations are coming to an end, according to the government, and expectations are high, not only in Ukraine, but also amongst its allies. Drone strikes on targets in Russian-occupied parts of Crimea are laying the ground for Ukraine's move since these areas are crucial for Russian resupply. At the same time, Russia is building trench networks so massive they're visible from outer space and launching nightly air attacks on Kiev and other cities. So late summer, autumn last year, Ukrainian forces recaptured big chunks of Ukrainian territory from Russia, especially in the northeast around Kharkiv and near Kherson in the south. Since then, front lines have been mostly static, though some areas have seen fierce fighting. Russian missiles, drones continue to strike Ukrainian cities and towns, mostly hitting civilian areas. As we just heard, for months now, Ukraine has been building up for a counteroffensive. More Western weapons are arriving. The signs from Ukraine has been trying to break up Russian supply lines, including in Crimea. On Wednesday this past week, two drones appear to have targeted the Kremlin in Moscow. A camera happened to catch the moment the drone descended on the Kremlin and was blown up by air defences. The Russians say there were two drones 15 minutes apart and they're blaming Ukraine. Moscow accused Ukraine of trying to assassinate Russian President Vladimir Putin, also later saying the US had a hand in the attacks. Ukraine denies it was involved. Washington dismisses the allegations as ludicrous. So with the Ukrainian counteroffensive looming, what would a successful campaign look like to Kiev and its Western backers? Is there any chance it could change the Kremlin's calculations? And with the US election campaign approaching in 2024, some American politicians questioning Washington's support for Ukraine, how should we assess the West's stamina? 
to talk about all this, I am very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Olia Olika, who, as listeners will know, is Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. Olia, welcome back on. Glad to be back. So, Olia, let's start then with the front lines. As we heard, not a lot of movement, but still a lot of fighting in some areas. Right. I mean, that's what we've seen for months now is we've had some pitched battles. There's a lot of casualties being taken by both sides, but very little territory changing hands. And when it does, it's painful and hard fought. Most of the attention, uh, the press attention has been on Bakhmut, where there's been fighting since, well, really throughout the war, but uh, intensive fighting since last fall. And where, again, the Russians have made progress, but very slowly and with a lot of casualties. But in fact, there's been fighting all this time all along the front lines. And so the looming counteroffensive, as we heard up top, big expectations around what that's going to look like. I mean, do you have a sense of, of when it's coming and what it might entail? Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely a waiting for Godot feel with the counteroffensive. Uh, you know, we're all pretty sure it's coming. The Ukrainians like to surprise, right? That is one of the things that they always want to do is have the advantage of surprise. Uh, worked very well for them in the successful counteroffensive late last summer, early fall. So they want to strike when and where Russia doesn't expect them to. So I think that's part of it. Another part of it, of course, is that they are rebuilding. As I've said, they have taken heavy casualties. So they've got a lot of new folks in the force that have needed training. They've got new equipment coming in that people need to be trained on. So there is just a question of preparation. And of course, it's really important for them that this be successful. Now, how do you measure success? Ukrainians will say success is we liberate territory. But there's another question here of is success then, you know, go for the softest uh, Russian lines you can find and push through them? Or is success identify strategic targets that can make a difference for the future of the war? In principle, you want to do both. But the Russians are pretty dug in uh, in the areas that they've held for some time now. And so front lines in Ukraine are very long, 600 miles, almost a thousand kilometers. And obviously there are a lot of different options for Ukraine in where it chooses to focus its forces. One would be sort of the east. Again, we talked about the fighting around Bakhmud, so in the Donbass, Donetsk, Luhansk, another might be to try to push south, maybe try to take back Zaporizhia, for example, this nuclear power plant that Russia's captured, or to cut off the Russian-controlled land corridor between eastern Ukraine and Crimea. What are sort of the advantages and disadvantages of different options, things that might shape where Ukrainians concentrate their forces to try and advance? So again, I think a lot of it is going to be where do they think they'll be successful? And a lot of it is what is going to have an impact, and that impact can be symbolic and psychological, and that impact can be military. You know, do you regain territory that you can then defend, that you can then strike from? Do you retake control of the separation nuclear power plant, which solves an awful lot of problems, since the, you know, both political and strategic, though fighting around a nuclear power plant is uh, understandably fraught? You know, do you try to break the Russian land bridge, which is, you know, it's big accomplishment of this war, right, is that they have all this territory that connects them to Crimea. Though, of course, they're still mainly supplying Crimea uh, over the bridge, not chugging everything along all the way through southern Ukraine. 
This is the bridge on which there was an explosion, I mean, widely assumed to be attacked by Ukraine what, in the autumn 2022, I think. It's the bridge that connects Crimea to Russia. Right, which they built shortly after they annexed Crimea in 2014. So, but that is how they're supplying. Uh, they were able to make repairs after after the attack. So, you know, these are decisions. I think the Ukrainians would like to and would like us all to think that they can attack uh along several axes simultaneously. But then the other thing you want to do is you want your adversary to be thinking that you're concentrating forces where you're not, right? So they prepare where you don't actually go. And that, again, worked really well for the Ukrainians a year ago with the Russians preparing for the Ukrainians to strike in the south and the Ukrainians, in fact, striking uh, far more in the north. So I think we are kind of stuck waiting and seeing. And the areas that the Ukrainians took back last year, in the autumn last year, these were mostly areas that had been recently captured by Russia. They had been captured. They're post-2014 areas where generally the Ukrainian forces coming back through were welcomed in the streets. People wanted them there. Would it be different in other parts of Ukraine, especially particularly for the Ukrainians get further east to areas that have been outside their control for longer? Do, do, do you have a sense of whether it would be different? I don't know. I mean, I think, look, if you think about someplace like Crimea, where the pro-Ukrainian population, the population that did not want to live under Russian rule, a lot of those people have left uh, over the years since 2014. And even before that, there was uh, Crimea had a very large population of effectively the families of um Russian Black Sea Fleet personnel who had come, who had followed the sailors' uh to the peninsula, and then people retire there, and then they stay there. So that was a decent chunk of the population even before 2014. If you're thinking about Donetsk and Luhansk, I think that is a population where also a lot of people have left. People have, in many cases, stayed because they didn't have a choice. It's really hard to judge what public opinion is in the parts of Donetsk and Luhansk, which Russia has effectively controlled since 2014. It's not as though these are places where you can do lots of very open public opinion research. The public opinion research that has been done has consistently showed a lot of ambivalence. I think these people would like the war to end, right? And part of the challenge that actually Ukraine saw in liberating territory last year was that in some of these territories, particularly in the South, where there hadn't been much fighting to take them, Liberation brought fighting because after they were liberated, Russia started shelling them. And places in the north where the Russians had to fight to gain them, I think it's a little different. But liberation has not brought peace for a lot of these. And I think that's kind of the other challenge. And of course, the challenges of just coming in and liberating territory, it's not that easy. It's effectively a policing function, right? You have to go in, you have to establish control. Military forces may or may not be very well prepared for that. It's not the job they are doing when they're taking the territory. Ukraine would not be unique in having a problem with that. And this isn't to say that there's going to be huge human rights abuses. I don't mean anything like that. I just mean that suddenly you're effectively administrating a town or a city with people's complaints and everything that they need done. And that's hard. And Olya, in terms of the military buildup, and I, I want to come to some of the discussions about fighter jets, I want to come to that a little bit later. But some months ago now, after much debate, Western capitals agreed to send tanks, so mostly the German Leopard tanks. Those have now arrived. Ukrainians are ready to use them. 
Yes, uh, both British and German tanks are already in Ukrainian hands and have been since March. There are a lot more ostensibly coming. What that says to me is that Ukrainians have been trained on them and they're ready to operate them. So presumably it's not going to be an issue absorbing more as they show up. But I will... You know, it's a wide variety of tanks that is meant to be coming into the Ukrainian arsenal. Uh, one Ukrainian former military official said to me that it's going to look like a video game by the end with all these different tanks of all these different manufacturers from all these different countries, uh, all in the field of battle. So I think that's another thing to think about is how do you integrate such a disparate uh, set of equipment? What they've been doing up until now is dividing them up, you know, so this unit has this kind of equipment, that unit has that kind of equipment, and you try to keep it flowing that way. Um but, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before everything uh, that has been promised to Ukraine in the form of tanks is in Ukrainian hands. And by then, other things will have been promised and we'll be waiting for those to arrive. So on Wednesday this week, uh, there were these drone strikes on the Kremlin. What do we know to the extent we do know about those? That's basically what we know. They appear to have taken out a flag. The Russians have said this was an assassination attempt on Vladimir Putin. The Ukrainians have said they didn't do it. Ilya Panamarov, a Russian opposition figure in exile, has claimed he did it or his people did it. Who is Ilya Panamarov? Ilya Panamarov is a um, Russian opposition figure living in, I would have to check, maybe Warsaw, who claimed uh, responsibility for the killing of Darya Dugina, this is the daughter of the guy who's vaulted as, as one of Putin's sort of spiritual or strategic advisors, uh, Alexander Dugin. Right. So Panamarov says he's sending Russians to fight in Ukraine. There are Russians fighting in Ukraine on the Ukrainian side. It's not clear who is doing what, to what extent, and with what level of effectiveness. It's a mushy, messy area. Panamarov is very public. And I think that actually engenders a certain amount of distrust. And it seems unlikely that this was a false flag operation, right? Something the Russians have done themselves as a pretext to escalate further. I mean, it's it's embarrassing for Moscow that drones struck the Kremlin, even if there wasn't serious damage. It seems unlikely to be a false flag operation, though the Russians did report it awfully quickly, which is kind of interesting. You know, there was kind of community footage that came out, right, that people who apparently were up at dawn taking video of the Kremlin for whatever reasons of their own, saw the strike and, you know, that, that got posted. You know, there, are, it could be Russian opposition from within Russia. If it is a Ukrainian operation, it's a trolling operation, right? It's not accomplished a strategic goal other than to show that if it was the Ukrainians that they could reach the Kremlin. Uh, but if all you can reach the Kremlin with is a drone that maybe takes out a flag, okay, and there's been, people have been posting on social media drone imagery of uh, Moscow, of the Moscow suburbs to send that signal of we can reach here. But yeah, it's really, it's really hard to judge who did this, why they did it. And after the attack on the bridge that we talked about, the Kerch Bridge linking Crimea to Russia, after that attack, Russia retaliated with these massive airstrikes pummeling Ukrainian towns and cities across the country. I mean, do you think that might happen again after these drone attacks on the Kremlin? I don't know. 
We've seen an uptick in uh, Russian attacks after a period of uh, comparative quiet. I've mostly been attributing that to just manufacturing cycles for the weaponry. They could hit other targets, right? They could hit targets, Ukrainian government targets that they haven't been striking previously. But I think on this too, we're waiting and seeing. So, Olya, when we last spoke a couple of months ago, the sense was, as it has been for some time, that the Kremlin's calculating that Russia can continue to ride out the economic sanctions, that there isn't a lot of popular resistance to the war in Russia, not in, a, in any way that sort of threatens the Kremlin, and that, in essence, Putin can wait out the West, that the staying power of the West is less than that of Moscow. And that over time, the advantage will shift toward Russia. I mean, do you think that's still the calculation? I think the Russians uh, clearly are hoping for that. And it does seem to be what they're planning on, right? We've seen no evidence that they're looking to cut a deal, that they feel that they have to find a way out of this. To the contrary, they are doing their level best to convince themselves and uh, the rest of us that they're in it for the long haul. I also think that there are certain advantages to this government of maintaining a war. They put out a foreign policy concept um, about a month ago. We wrote up a piece on it that's very much we are in for a long war with the West overall. Ukraine actually is barely mentioned, but the idea is that Russia's purpose is countering the West uh, everywhere on all things. So Ukraine is part of that to Russia. But it's also the hot war. And I think it's a lot easier to sell your public on economic pain and a certain isolation if you're fighting a hot war because people are dying, but then they're dying for something. It might be the criminal calculation that it would be more difficult to do that in a colder war. So there are advantages to keeping this war going. On the other hand, it is expensive. It does take resources. The you know, weapons manufacturers are doing very, very well. But, you know, you have to keep cranking this stuff out and people do keep dying. And Russia still doesn't fully control any of the four oblasts or regions that formerly it has annexed. I mean, if the front lines are fairly static, I mean, this can't be lost completely on Russians that the Russian forces are not actually making gains at the moment. Right. But if you decide that you're better off fighting a stalemated simmering war than losing by whatever definition you want to choose, then that's okay. And hey, you have something to fight for to continue to get control of these regions that you claim are now Russia. I think there's a tendency to look at the situation in the West and say, well, this wouldn't make sense for Russia to do, so Russia won't do it. But that's not... That doesn't hold up, right? Russia does things that don't make sense. And sometimes they have disastrous effects, but Russia still does them, right? Whether it's the initial decision to launch a full-fudged war against Ukraine or the decision to claim to have annexed territory you don't actually control, right? These are not moves that in advance you would say, oh, wow, this is a smart thing to do, but they did them. So you have to create space for the Russians to do things that don't seem like smart things. And that's also kind of, it's kind of a different reality, right? It's a reality where the Ukrainians are Nazis, though most of the population would still probably be willing to live under Russian rule. I don't know to what extent they still think that, where this is a proxy war, where the West is uh, effectively fighting Russia, even though 
they know that they're fighting in Ukraine against Ukrainians. So it, you know, it's, it's a difficult mindset to squeeze yourself into and try to figure out what logic flows from it, because it doesn't make a ton of sense from where you and I sit. Ollie, so you would see the annexations as a, as a miscalculation. Obviously, the original invasion, the sort of full-scale war back in what, February 2022, I mean, obviously, that was a massive strategic miscalculation. Russia, the Kremlin completely misread the degree of Ukrainian resistance and preparedness, the Western unity that the invasion would inspire, the weakness, the ineptness of Russian forces. I mean, that was clearly a you know, an enormous miscalculation. But the annexations, leaving aside the, the illegality of them, I mean, violation of international law, but even leaving that aside, what wasn't that about demonstrating resolve after Ukraine's offensive last year? But you see those as a, as a misstep? So I actually think that the annexations were a misstep. And I think a lot of Russians do too, certainly based on uh, conversations our analysts are having. Um, they followed the successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, and I think came out of a desire to do something. And right now the Russians are stuck. So I don't think that was a genius move. It means they're losing, right? The territory they claim is Russia, that the constitution says they can't give up, they don't control. You've seen a lot of shakeups within the armed forces. You certainly don't see a lot of military success from the Russians. You see these missile and drone barrages that, look, they're, they're murderous harassment strikes. For a while, it was targeting energy infrastructure, but Ukraine got through the winter quite successfully. It helped that it was a warm winter. So now they're just doing it to do it. Uh, maybe every once in a while they hit a military target. So a few months ago, there was this sense that Russian manpower was, you know, they really had manpower problems, that the mobilization had been fairly limited, that the people they were sending in weren't really trained, and that they were going to run out of troops, while at the same time, the Kremlin seemed reluctant to embark on bigger mobilizations for fear of provoking more resistance within Russian society. I mean, do they still have those problems? I mean, it seems now that there's more Russians deploying to the front and they're slightly better trained. So look, we had the group that was deployed initially after the quote unquote partial mobilization and a lot of people were just thrown in with little or no training. Other people got a few months training and went in later and they were more effective. There continues to be talk of new mobilizations, worries about new mobilizations. There has not been a massive mobilization, though people are continuing to get various kinds of notices and there's been new restrictions on movement and promises of new restrictions on movement. The way it, it is now is that, you know, whether or not you received your little note, your little mobilization notice, if one was issued to you one way or another, you're not allowed to leave the country, which, you know, it's unnerving. These are things that continue to raise the level of tension within Russian society. We'll see if and when they decide to try to mobilize more people in a broader sense. I think they do worry about public response. I have not seen good published data on exactly who was mobilized from where. There's a lot of speculation. It does look like uh, mobilization continues to hit poorer parts of Russia a lot harder than it hits uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, you know, wealthy cities. And the infighting around the Kremlin. So the head of Wagner, this private security firm close to the Kremlin, 
Yevgeny Prigozhin, usually very critical of the military command, the generals, the minister of defense, that sort of sniping, that's still ongoing? It's still going, still going. Uh, Prigozhin makes his statements. Yeah, I think it just stops being news in the West a little bit because it's, it is more of the same. And so do you think there's going to be any change in Moscow's calculations if there is a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive over the summer? There should be. I think that it should force a rethink. What Moscow is counting on is the West backing away. If Ukraine is successful, or honestly, if Ukraine is unsuccessful, right, you can, uh, you can tell the story that way too. The West is going to fall in behind it. So, right, if Ukraine is unsuccessful, then the clamor is going to be, you didn't give us enough weapons, you're setting us up for failure, give us more weapons. And that is going to find uh, a certain amount of uh, receptive audience in Western countries. If they're successful, then, right, the message to the Russians is, well, you know, maybe we can't do this forever. On the other hand, if they're successful, but they don't have a whole lot of capacity left after that, that maybe it opens up space for the Russians to launch their own offensives. So a lot depends on the specifics of how this fighting goes and how depleted it leaves both Russia and Ukraine. I guess you could argue some of that both ways. Now, I mean, if the Ukrainians don't make big advances over the summer, there will certainly be clamor for more weapons, more support. But you can easily see that at least some Western capitals might resist that, right? I mean, if if Ukrainian forces don't make gains, you could see that there might be more appetite in the West to try to fight away and to end the war or at least freeze the fighting. We can come in a moment to Western capitals, but do you think calculations or, or war goals in Ukraine, in Kiev, might change if the offensive isn't successful or doesn't capture back as much territory or much strategic territory as, as Ukrainians are hoping for? What I think it would do is really turn up the burner under Ukrainian politics, because there'd be a lot of people blaming each other and doing it publicly and doing it in a way that positions them for future elections. And, you know, I think that would weaken the Zelensky government. The Zelensky government would then try to take steps to limit that weakening. And that could all get very ugly and probably very counterproductive to Ukraine's military capacity. People will be accusing the MOD and the military of getting things wrong, generals who made the wrong decisions, the MOD who didn't supply them properly. They will find corrupt dealings and point to them and blame each other. And it's going to be a big political mess, which is going to do no good to the Ukrainian armed forces. So I think they'd like to avoid that with a at least reasonably successful counteroffensive. So let's come then to Western policy, European, US policy. And maybe let's start with the weapons. So the tanks are going in. They made that decision some months ago. And it seems now the main debates are around long range missiles, which so far the US has been reluctant to give, sort of fearing that Ukraine will use them to strike Russia itself. And in particular, a lot of debate now about fighter jets, more advanced Western made fighter jets rather than the Soviet jets that Ukraine has mostly been using now. So people talking a lot about American F-16s or maybe F-18s or the Swedish Gripon is the other plane sort of floated as, as an option. And the debate is often framed in terms of caution and timing. So on the one hand, these are big decisions that need to be made carefully. The value of the weapons for Ukraine needs to be weighed against the risk of escalation. 
into direct conflict between NATO and Russia. On the other hand, there's a lead time. It takes a while after the decision is made to supply you know, weapons, particularly for equipment that requires training for Ukrainians like advanced fighter jets. And during that time, during that lead time, Ukraine potentially loses out along the front line. So another argument goes, why not prepare the ground for that decision by, let's say, training Ukrainians already on whatever fighter jets they're going to get, making sure the planes are actually available, or even make the decision earlier, knowing that it's going to take some time before the planes arrive. What do you make of that debate? I don't know. I mean, Ukraine doesn't have a lot of airfields that are good for F-16s. It's worth asking why Ukraine wants the fighter jets. And there are two things. One is air defense, and the other is basically using them as artillery, right? Using them to bombard, um, targeting positions, and uh, thus making up for some of the ammunition gaps. So I think you can manage this problem by continuing to send um, older Soviet-type uh, fighters, which uh, Ukraine has been getting some of, and you can keep doing that for some time. I am unconvinced of the added value of advanced Western fighter jets. Maybe I'm missing something, but I think the lead time, the limited comparative advantage, I don't get it. And I suspect that's how a lot of uh, Western government officials also think. There is a symbolic value to it, right? We should trust the Ukrainians to determine what they want and give it to them. So at some point, kind of political pressure of that sort could be effective. Some of the coverage in Western media is, you know, almost sort of implying that it's a done deal, that Ukrainians are going to get F-16s. It's just a matter of when. And as a result, you might as well start training pilots now. I don't think it's a done deal. I don't exclude the possibility it'll happen. I definitely have a bias towards being very skeptical of kind of pour more Western stuff in that it'll solve all your problems. I'm also a big fan of trying to do something to make Ukrainian defense industry work again. There's a lot of capacity there. And it has been in the past a real engine for that economy. And if you focus on just buying stuff, how are you going to rebuild it? So, you know, I could be completely wrong. And the ship has sailed or, you know, is about to sail. But I still don't get the point. So up to now, Western unity despite some predictions that it would be tested over the winter. Western unity in backing Ukraine has held. In many ways, it's been impressive, much stronger than many people, probably including President Putin himself, as we talked about, anticipated. And we've talked a lot about that in previous episodes. But especially now in the US, you do hear even legislators sympathetic to the White House's policy and support for Ukraine. You even hear them saying that as the 2024 elections approach, it's going to be harder for them to defend to constituents why the US is spending these enormous sums of money on Ukraine, what the longer term goal in Ukraine is. Plus, of course, you have this small but very vocal caucus within the Republicans that is much more overtly critical of giving Ukraine the support that the US is currently giving former President Donald Trump, who certainly stands a chance of being the Republican candidate, also very critical. Now, in some ways, this potentially raises the stakes of the counteroffensive if there's questions about U.S. continued support. But how grave a risk do you think U.S. politics pose Western support for Ukraine? 
So Western support has been stunningly resilient, I would say, since 2014, through all sorts of political ups and downs. Uh, it survived the Trump administration, right? Uh, and I think one of the challenges for Western democracies is we debate things uh, and we argue about them in election campaigns because that's what you do in election campaigns. You try to think of things that your opponents are going to be vulnerable on and you hammer them. Um but the strategic argument for why you support Ukraine, or to some people, the moral argument or whatever, you know, pick your, pick your argument. I like the strategic one, uh, has, has continued to hold sway. I think that's going to be the case in, uh, in European Union countries for a while. The United States is, I agree, certainly the long pole in the tent and also, you know, the provider of a great deal of this assistance. So a really, really important pole. Um, and American elections can go in all sorts of ways. And I do think if I were Ukrainian, I'd worry about this. Um, and if I were Russian, I'd be hoping, uh, for it. It could, yeah, it, it could be a huge game changer. And indeed, Moscow does seem to be hoping for this, right? Absolutely. But, you know, they got Trump once before and it didn't work out quite as uh, well as, uh, they initially expected, right? Don't underestimate the American capacity for inertia with its policies and particularly its wars, whether it's fighting them or just supporting them. I think that's another factor to consider is it's hard to change U.S. policy on things like this. Let me come back in a moment to what all that means for Western strategy. But before I do, could we talk a little bit about the nuclear risks? Obviously, there's still a lot of caution, sensible caution, I think, in Western capitals about the weapons they're giving to Ukraine, a lot of debate and awareness of the escalation risks. But there does also seem an increasing tendency to sort of dismiss the danger that Russia would use in some conditions a nuclear weapon. Obviously, there are very strong reasons against the Kremlin doing that. It would really have to feel, I think, sort of existentially threatened. And, you know, in some ways, the frequency of what were Moscow's sort of barely veiled nuclear threatening in some ways that the frequency of that has diminished. But how would you assess that danger today? So the nuclear risks never go away. We are learning a great deal about what are credible threats, what are not credible threats. And Russia's learning them as it makes them. Uh, it's not the first country to make threats and then find that they weren't credible. Um, but, you know, that's part of it. But Russia continues to be a country with more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. There continue to be conditions under which Russia would use its nuclear weapons. And there is still some fuzziness as to what those conditions are, including, I think, within the Kremlin, that I don't know that they know themselves quite what their red line is. And for that reason, yes, absolutely, we should continue to be aware of this and be careful. It is a wonderful sign that they've uh, slowed down some of that rhetoric, but it comes back periodically. There is always this very strong temptation to use nuclear weapons coercively if you have them. And then the question arises of at what point do you use them physically? And so with that, and especially and, and some of the other stuff we've talked about in mind, there is an argument that we hear more frequently, or if not more frequently, then maybe made by more mainstream voices, especially in the US, that Western capital should give Ukraine what they can for the offensive, make sure Ukraine is properly equipped so that it can get as much as possible from this offensive over the summer, over the autumn. And then after that, if front lines remain static or settle again, 
maybe let's think more about what getting Russia to the table might look like. Again, Russia, given very few indications that it's interested in that. But you do hear more people saying, well, at least let's try that a sustained war doesn't actually serve US, maybe Western interests more broadly. Now, I don't think it's completely out of the question that, you know, that is a if not US policy, at least an option for the White House. But obviously, the administration is not going to say that for fear of undercutting the offensive or Ukraine's bargaining position. So what do you make of a policy along those lines? So, I mean, I would say three, three issues. One is um, if you are in the midst of a war or a negotiation, you don't say what your best alternative to victory is you say we are going to keep on fighting to the very end and our goals have not changed and you don't back away from that until you've gotten to the negotiating table and then you negotiate whatever it is you negotiate. So I think that that's kind of the first, uh, the first part of this. Um, the second part of this is you don't see these articles in Russia. Russia is not launching trial balloons uh, to signal its actual willingness to negotiate. Russia is sending a very clear and very coherent signal that is, we are willing to do this forever and ever and ever. You might doubt that they really can or they really are. You might say that, oh, they don't have a free press, so you wouldn't get these kinds of trial balloons. But you actually would, right, If because they don't have a free press, because it's controlled, because nothing of this sort could possibly come out without a Russian government approval, it would actually mean something if you saw this in the pages of Kondersant, and you do not. So this, again, does help feed this Russian notion that the West is going to fold. I think that's actually a problem because the Russians underestimate Western staying power, and this is how this all just keeps going. And then the third thing I would say is that getting Ukraine and Russia to the negotiating table Even with that, you then have the broader problem, which is that to Russia, this is just part of the broader standoff campaign war, as they would say, against a U.S.-led West and part of Russia's mission to undermine uh, that U.S.-led West and U.S. global leadership hegemony order, call it what you will. And that doesn't go away. And I think from a Western perspective, making sure that this war ends in a way that doesn't put Western countries and and European security in a worse situation under the conditions of what Russia is going to be doing in the future, whether it's more wars in Europe, whether it's more wars in Ukraine. I think that's the other consideration that somehow doesn't make it into these arguments. I think we're stuck in a standoff. That standoff can be more or less stable But if you treat this like it's just about Ukraine, you are setting yourself up for failure. Right, though, let's say towards the end of the year, it does sort of seems to have settled into a a stalemate. What would you say to the argument that, you know, isn't it better to at least try to stop the fighting? Leave the question of the territory of the Ukrainian territory that Russia still controls to some sort of process and try to deal with those strategic questions that you talked about, the relations between Russia and NATO, arms control, maybe leave those to talks. But with the front line settled, less destruction, less danger of nuclear escalation, fewer global economic ramifications, less division globally. I mean, the Ukrainian war has been so destructive on so many levels, even beyond Ukraine. Also, Ukraine isn't the only war where belligerent statements imply maximalist goals, where it's overlaid with regional or geopolitical standoffs. You know, 
many wars today are internationalized, as, as people say. So, as you say, it may simply not work at all, judging from the Kremlin's rhetoric exactly as you say, it's not interested. But given the huge costs and the dangers in the war, you know, why not put effort into, into trying? So one argument for why more fighting is strategically advantageous, even if it's a stalemate, is that it weakens Russia and it weakens the Russian military machine. And a related argument is that this is how you convince Russia that it needs to actually come to the table and try to get what it can get, which is potentially that frozen line you want. But if you get that frozen line with Ukraine coming to the table, then it's effectively Ukraine capitulating. And if Ukraine capitulates, then you do have a very strong risk of two things. One is Russia pushing as far as it can push both on Ukraine and on other European security issues, because clearly it's Ukraine and its backers who want peace much more than Russia does. So clearly they are the ones who should offer concessions. And you might get a Russia that's emboldened to try it again because it worked this time around. So these are the logics for why you want to keep fighting until it is Russia that's asking for a deal. And of course, Russia understands that, which is why it is sending the signal that it is never going to ask for a deal. And Olya, what if, and I realize we're probably getting a bit far away from reality now, but let's just suppose that you had sort of others, China, especially, of course, India, maybe, though, you know, admittedly, neither look very likely to move in that direction for now. But what if you had states like that? pushing to try to get Moscow to seek an end to the fighting at a time at a time when Washington and other Western powers were also more open to that. I realize this is clutching at straws, but it seems that anything that might find the way out of this is worth thinking through. I think what's interesting about China and India and other parties is whether they can bring Russia along, is whether they can change Russia's incentives such that Russia is willing to say, I don't want to keep this going. I am facing pressure from China and India countries that I describe as strategic partners in one way or another, and they're making my life difficult and they're changing my incentives. If those countries can get Russia into that kind of a calculation, I think there's a lot of value to it. They also have a lot of leverage over Russia that nobody else does. So if anybody can, it's them. Olya, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you. Take care. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a nice rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And I very much hope that you'll join us again next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.